This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. Open with me in Matthew chapter 23. <clears throat> Matthew 23 is, is where we were last Sunday, and uh, we're completing or going through another section of that chapter. We talked about the, um, the blind sides uh, that we often have as individuals as Jesus confronted the scribes and the Pharisees. It, it's subtitled the, the Seven Woes to the Scribes and Pharisees, the Seven Warnings, if you would. And so we pick up with chapter 23, beginning in verse 29. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So that you may come all the come, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. When I spoke of blind spots, what I mean by that is referencing how if you're driving a vehicle, there are areas as in your, in your, outside the vehicle as you're driving, you just can't see. It doesn't matter how many mirrors you have or, or uh, rear view cameras, there's going to be a spot that's not visible as you look through the front windshield. That's not as big a deal as what we're speaking of here. What I'm speaking of is that in life, there are things that we say, we do, we believe that may not be appropriate, may be offensive, may be theologically out of out of sorts, may just be totally wrong in other areas, but we may not recognize it in our own lives because we, like all of us, have, uh, as we drive, we have blind spots in our lives. Now, history is an interesting thing. I love history. I'm a, I, kinda, I like reading about historical events. I like going uh, to museums. I like uh, going to places like archaeological digs and trying to imagine what it was like in a certain era or a different time. I like reading historical biographies uh, and just kind of taking, uh, taking all of that in. And uh, when we read history or we study history, we do so, hopefully, not just for our own entertainment, but to learn from it, to hopefully avoid uh, replicating some of the problems or the, the wrongs that were done in previous generations. All cultures and nations, all people groups, all communities, even churches, have chapters in their history that they would rather not revisit. It is and has been said that when there is a war or a, or a battle that the victor has the privilege of writing history, and we know that to be true. Yet every generation, it seems, tends to believe, at least at some level, that it is more enlightened than the previous ones that have come. And when the atrocities of the past are brought to light, whether in study or revealed, Current generations tend to publicly abhor the actions of the past, declaring things like, if I had lived during that era, I would have never done what my forefathers did. 
We tend to look at history in that way. Of course, there are always outliers, but by and large, when a collective understanding of rightness is declared, people tend to place themselves in a position of being much wiser, smarter, more loving, more caring, and definitely more understanding than the generations that have gone before. This is a sense of 2020 hindsight, so to speak, but there's also a sense of self-righteousness that often permeates that belief. The thing is that in our current generation, we often, while looking back, going, well, we would never have done those things. I can't believe that happened in our past. We lose sight of the fact that 20, 30, 40, 100 years from now, there will likely be descendants of ours, generations walking the earth, if Jesus has not yet come back, who will look back at the history that we are now experiencing, and they will shake their heads and go, I can't believe they did or said or thought what they did, said or thought, and if we lived back then, we never would have done it. It's a perpetuating reality. In Germany recently, you may have seen this in the news, it was about a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago, a lady named Ursula Haverbeck was arrested. Ursula was arrested for a crime that she had committed and had committed numerous times. It was not her first arrest. She had been arrested and and then served her time or paroled and, and gone and then did the exact same thing again and arrested again. Ursula Haverbeck was known in Germany, or is known in Germany today, as the Nazi Oma, the Nazi grandma. See, Ursula is 89 years old, and she loves apparently going to jail, but she keeps doing it. And the reason that Ursula, this Nazi grandma, is going to jail is as the chairwoman of a pro-Nazi training center, and by spreading Nazi propaganda, she declares that the Holocaust never happened. Now, you're living in here in the United States, a little different take on that. There are people that may declare the Holocaust never took place, and while I do believe it did take place, and while I believe the atrocities of Nazi Germany are very real and documented, there are some who declare they did not happen. And in Germany today, based on who won the war and who wrote the the laws now, it is illegal to declare the Holocaust to have never happened. So if you're in Germany today and you declare the Holocaust as a figment, and especially if you're handing out and propagating Nazi um, propaganda, you are breaking the law and will be arrested, as the Nazi Oma has proven over and over again. But what's interesting about her is if she had been doing what she is doing now decades prior, it would have not been a problem at all. If she'd have been doing what she's doing now during the age of the Third Reich when Nazi Germany was at its height and when Adolf Hitler was in charge, she would not have been arrested. She would have been celebrated. Now, to make sure you understand the clarity of what I am saying, I believe that Nazism is wrong. I think it is an evil. But that movement that, was, that took place, it was an evil movement. Hitler was used by the enemy for that. Many people died because of that. But not everybody believes that to be the case, and apparently, apparently Ursula does not believe so. But it's interesting as we sit here in America and look across the pond and we declare, I can't believe that's even happening. Let's look at America for a little while here. In America today, the division between races, and we'll just clarify them with two especially, the, the race, if we're going to even call it a race, but let's say between blacks and whites today, which was thought to have been historically solved by some, apparently that division is widening and raging still. We are not that far removed from a pre-civil rights era in our nation today. In fact, we know that to be the case because some of you in the room today can remember the pre-civil rights era. 
You understand when we talk about the civil rights era and that movement, especially if you grew up in the South, you understand the idea of separate but equal. Some of you have grown up in Clay County and used to go to the Clay Theater in Green Cove, which is being renovated now into a wedding venue. But at the time, you could go into the front door of the theater to go see a movie. But if your skin happened to be darker than your friends, you had to go outside and in the other entrance to sit in the balcony for far be it from any white person to sit by a black person in a public setting. It wasn't just the Woolworth counter. It was everywhere and it was normal. It was normative. And I want to be careful. Let's listen to the whole thing here. Let's talk about this because this is a, a, a history we have to own. We are not that far removed from that. Violence centered not necessarily only on political persuasion, but on decades, if not centuries, held racist thought. And this is where it even got worse. That racial thought and the racist divide was perpetuated and justified by those who wore the name Christian using a backwards theological understanding to justify it. It existed, and it still exists in some places. We have churches in our Southern Baptist Convention that within the last 10 years finally integrated. Are you, are you following me? It's 2018. It's against the law, but apparently, depending on the small town you may live in and the color of the majority of the people that are still running the church, it was disallowed in certain towns for blacks to attend the all-white church. And up until about 10 years ago in certain areas, this made Baptist press. This is not unknown news. This was a reality. It existed, and the, pro and the wrongly held theological beliefs perpetuated that. They existed. Not only was that theology in existence, it was in existence, it was celebrated, it was allowed, and it was excused. There were sinful interpretations of race that allowed for beliefs such as the curse of Ham and the curse of Cain. And if you don't know what those are, read the Old Testament, go back to the book of Genesis. And if you've been in the South long enough and you're in the church long enough and your grandparents were in the South long enough, your family, and probably like my family, had this understanding that at some point God cursed through the curse of Ham or the curse of Cain all those people and made their skin darker. It's not biblical. It's not holy. It's not right. But it was perpetuated among Christianity and among the American cult that exists in the country today for many centuries that cult that looks Christian but isn't, that lives in Utah, that one. And they propagated it. And they said, well, that's what the Bible says, but that is not what the Bible says. And it was used to justify a racially held belief in order to keep everything separate but equal. Water fountains, movie theaters, schools, but they weren't equal. Jim Crow was born and considered okay. Now, there are other historic events and instances, even in our nation. They now stand as amazing moments that lead us as 2018 enlightened Americans to look and go, I can't believe that ever took place. Some, it, it, it would amaze some of our younger people especially to realize that it wasn't that long ago that if you were born a woman, you weren't allowed to vote in this country. It's a different world. Like, I can't believe that was the case. It wasn't that long ago that 
the care and the la- or lack thereof of the physically de- disabled or the mentally challenged was dealt with much differently than it is dealt with today. You may be frustrated that somebody misuses the blue uh, handicap sticker on their mirror to park where they close to the Walmart front entrance, but there was a day when those who were disabled and in wheelchairs, those who were mentally challenged and, and uh, are, are considered those uh, they were at one time, even as image bearers of Christ, considered outliers and not allowed in the mainstream world. They were put away. And we look at that and we shake our heads and we go, how could children of God justify such? But we did. We shake our heads at that and go, oh, I can't believe that ever happened. Then in, uh, not that long ago, the push to legalize abortion, and I'll go right there, right in the middle of it, the push to legalize abortion was justified as the right of a woman, and it was justified simply as a choice with the ignoring of the ending of a life that was taking place. Not only that, the excusing of other injustices that had been ignored and justified by those in our nation. And we look back through the lens of modernity, looking back at the decades past, going, how did this ever happen? How did we ever let this take place? How did we just ignore this? Where was the church in all this? Why was the church even complicit in all this? And we look back at that thinking, well, we are so enlightened, we are so educated that if we had lived back then, we never would have done that. Right. Every culture has difficult and even embarrassing chapters in their history. And we, well, many now look back and see the sinfulness of past generations. We see the sinfulness, the propagated sinfulness of the past generations of our fathers and our grandfathers and our parents and our grandparents and our aunts and uncles and those that came before us. And we understand right now, even though this is the, this is the challenge of independent American Christianity, I'll just go ahead and throw this one out to you because I hear this a lot. Why, well, I'm so sick and tired of us having to apologize for the sins of our people that lived decades ago and are dead now. I've heard that. And those Christians who say that never read Nehemiah 9, and they probably ignored the entire book of Daniel. Because there is this very clear biblical reality that you can love grandma and grandpa and all those that have come before, and when you acknowledge the sins of those that have come before and you ignore it, you're affirming the sins. And Nehemiah 9 makes it clear when the people of God made it back to Jerusalem after years of being uh, taken out uh, by, the, by the Persians, by God's design as punishment for sinful generations, they were taken out. They came back and they said, we will confess our sins and, and the sins of our dead relatives who've led us to the position we found ourselves in. For to ignore the sins of previous generations is implicit to an affirmation of such. And I know you don't want to hear that because you're going, well, I'm not not guilty for what they did. But for unity among the people and for for moving forward as a Christian church, for, for love to propagate, we have to at least realize that we, by being silent, may be sounding like we're affirming that which has been done in the past. I'll throw it out to you this way. If you say... Uh, Nazi Oma, that Nazism wasn't my issue, it was the issue of the previous generations in Germany. It almost sounds like you think Nazism's okay. And it made us some. So we repent of that. And we have to be careful. Here's where we have to be really careful. If we set too highly on our high horses looking down at the simple behaviors of past generations, thinking that we would never stoop to such, then woe to you. And woe to me. And that's where the timeless word of God speaks loudly to us today. 
Because that's what was happening in this passage, and Jesus clarifies it so well. He looks to those of the Pharisees and the scribes at the time who have these pious hearts. Uh, they're living high above everyone else, looking down on them. And they, they have done this, in case you don't know what it's talking about. They, as the religious leaders, had allowed and led into the building of monuments to honor dead prophets. All those guys in the Old Testament. While at the same time stating clearly, had we been alive when Isaiah and these guys were coming and doing their prophecies, we wouldn't have done what our forefathers did. They killed them. Jesus says, you hypocrites. You're declaring that because now you build a monument to a dead prophet, and then you say that if you lived back then, you would have been much better than they, you're lying. Because the heart of man is the heart of man, and it hasn't changed since the beginning of human history. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, let me just go ahead and clarify this, pious Pharisees and righteous scribes. You declare that you wouldn't have done what your ancestors did, but I say that it won't be long before you start crucifying Christians. It won't be long before you start sending out some of your minions and your representatives into the churches that are gathering in this New Testament era. You know, guys like Paul, and you'll be dragging them back to put them to death. And what makes that any different than what your forebearers did in the Old Testament? And yet you say, we're much better than they. Hmm. It's the woe of Jesus to the Pharisees, and it echoes throughout the century. The heart of man remains the same. In your pious understanding of how much wiser, better, smarter, and holier you may be than those who have come before, speaking to the Pharisees, because you're better educated and live in a more enlightened time, you miss a very clear reality. And this is that clear reality, that the very sinful nature of man has not and is not evolving to become better. We are not evolving to become sin-free. But the sin nature of humanity which I have within me and you have within you is the very same sin nature that all of our ancestors held. And it remains exactly what it has always been, broken, evil, dark, self-centered, self-promoting, self-protecting, and sinful. For if it wasn't, if we are moving into a better place where we're not as bad as they are, then we don't need Jesus. But the heart is still exactly what it's always been. And the cross is still the payment for what it's always been the payment for. So Jesus gives a woe to the Pharisees, and it echoes to us. And we hear the pushback, the pushing back of the, against the accusation. No way are we like those guys. No way are we like the ones who crucified Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought this, but I did as a kid, and I hope it was only as a kid, but I hate to think that I probably thought of it as an adult as well, but this kind of comes across in my mind when I'm doing Bible studies and readings, and I think something as uh, ridiculous as this. Man, I tell you, if I'd have lived back in Jesus' day, I would have stood by him the entire way. I never would have forsaken him on his journey to the cross. Because, of course, I'm a better Christian, more enlightened than those who were following him then. At least that's a thought that comes across my mind. But, oh, the audacity to believe that I am a stronger follower of Jesus than Peter, than Matthew, than Thaddeus, than these guys who spent three years, gave up everything, and walked around the Galilee region with him and saw the miracles firsthand. Because when it came down to it, they were gone. Oh, except John. I guess we'll give John a point, but he was there with Jesus' mama. But most of them just disappeared, just like I would have. I was recently accused 
That's a strong word. I'll change it to a nicer one. A declaration about me was recently made that my preaching style had changed. It was stated that I have now perfected the presentation of five minutes of scriptures and 20 minutes of a diatribe, of which I had to look up diatribe and soon realized that was not a compliment. So I looked up diatribe, and a diatribe definition is this. It's a noun for those who care. It is a forceful and bitter verbal attack against someone or something. And that's where I went, oh, bitter? I don't want to be bitter. The other I can take, but the bitter? That's kind of the, can we get rid of the bitter part? So it's a bit harsh, and I offended people, and, and, and they are being blessed at another local church now. And I've apparently followed God's calling to grow other churches in our county, so I keep doing that. Bless my heart, I guess. I don't know what to say about that. Uh, we'll have a reunion Sunday one day of everyone who ever was a member here. I don't know where we'll meet, probably at, at, at uh, the Jaguar Stadium. But... Um, that was stated that that was my style. I now have a style, which is good to know I have a style, I guess. I've never had style before. But I filed that descriptor away with, with other descriptors that I've heard as people exit. Here's another one I've heard. You know, people come to church because they want to feel better. Okay. That explains a lot of the growth of a certain church in a South Texas city. Um, now, I don't disagree that people want to feel better. I mean, I want to feel better. When I go eat lunch somewhere, it's because I want to eat food that makes me feel better. When I don't go to the gym, it's because I want to feel better. When I go to uh, a movie, I want to be entertained. I want to feel better. I mean, they, we want to feel better. That's not a sin. I want to feel better. But I do disagree that the church is a place where the focus should be to ensure that everybody feels better. And at the same time, while we do that, we're ignoring the sin that's a reality and that self-worth is coddled and propagated as the reason we're together. I, want I mean, if we're coming, coming together so everybody can feel really good about themselves, I think we've missed something because if that's the goal, the gospel's left unaddressed. So I, I look at that, these passages, and I look at that declaration of who I am now. And I asked this question in my study, was Jesus giving a religious diatribe, word of the day, diatribe? Now, if you remove the word bitterness because Jesus was not bitter, I would have to say, apart from the bitterness, yeah, I think he was. I don't think anybody left Jesus' congregation at that moment going, wow, I really feel good about myself now. I definitely don't think the Pharisees and the scribes were going, man, I can't wait to come back. So I read this and I think, well, here's what I know. I'm not Jesus. And that's an amen moment. So I'm not Jesus. And you are all so very fortunate. Just as I am very fortunate, you're not Jesus. Human nature being what it is. 
But I am a minister of the gospel, and I double-checked the license that I was given when, when, in Texas when I was licensed to the ministry, and I double-checked the ordination certificate I was given at this church when hands were placed upon me and I was ordained to the gospel ministry, and I recognize that this whole laity clergy thing is not biblical, but nevertheless, I have been called out by God to be a pastor, and as by double-checking the, the ordination certificate and the licensing certificate, I've discovered a good reminder that I was charged to preach the gospel at all times. Apparently, that's not just for ministers, but it was on paper for me. So being charged to preach the gospel at all times meant that I do not get the option to pick and choose how much of it I preach or proclaim or just when I get to. If I just preach the gospel when I feel good, you may never get it. So the gospel is a 24-hour proclamation either through my actions or my words, and I must proclaim that. So I read this passage and I go, well, here's Jesus, and here's what he did. He did not pull any punches in his declaration of these woes. Now, I also get this. Only really weird people go to a church every week where they feel beat up all the time. So I apologize if that's coming across. Somewhere between the feel good and the not being beat up. I gotta be kind of somewhere in between that. I get that. But I read this and realize that that Jesus is being very clear. Here's something that often is missed, though. Jesus does not hate the scribes and Pharisees. Did you know that? He doesn't hate them. We picture them, they're the bad guys. Jesus is the good guys. No, Jesus does not hate those guys. But here's what Jesus does. He's calling out their contradictions in their theology where he sees it. He says, don't tell me your version of sin is not as severe as the version of your forefathers. You do exactly what they did, and you're going to do even similar things in your life to these guys. That's what he's saying to them. And that, my friend, is a diatribe. And maybe the wise should take it to heart. But let's continue in the passage, verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's an entry to the Palm Sunday coming. There is an old uh, spiritual, under the categorization of Negro spiritual, a song sung by African-American slaves here in America that was to declare uh, some things about Christ. You understand what we talk about when we speak of the old Negro spirituals. I looked this one up and found out that on one Google page it said Johnny Cash wrote it. He did not. <laughs> that means you don't believe everything in the internet. Unless Johnny Cash grew up in the 1880s or 1860s, actually, he didn't write this. He did record it, though. But you may know this song. Sometimes it comes out at Easter time, something like this. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know that song? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Then it goes into this, oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. You know that song. You know what I'm going to do for you today? I want to answer it. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The answer is very clearly, yes. You were there. And so was I. We were all there. We were not there as spectators, but we were participants. We were not there as extras in the crowd, but as active participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, kissing Jesus on the cheek. All of that, you and I were there. And I know you're going, no, I've not even been to Israel. I don't have a time machine. I wasn't really there. Hey, virtually, we were all there, or the cross doesn't have to happen. We were there. John Stott, the pastor, says it this way. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and repentance or worship, 
We have to see the cross as done, something done by us, leading us to repentance. I fear that all too often we find ourselves in the very same position the Pharisees that Jesus was speaking to in this account found themselves. We have the church answers. Many of you do. You've been to church long enough to know the church answers. You've been in enough Sunday school classes to get it right. That's not bad. You got that. We have the religious garments and the trappings of religiosity. We have the Christian stuff of culture. Now, what is that Christian stuff? That's the Jesus junk we love. It might be a sticker on your window that says Jesus is first in your life. It may be a plastic fish on the back of your car. could be pre-programmed every channel in your radio in your car to a Christian station. Maybe it's a, a, a uh, I don't know, some Jesus thing you bought at Hobby Lobby and you hung it in your house. Maybe you eat at Chick-fil-A twice a week. You have Jesus stuff. You love Jesus and you want people to know it. You share a Bible verse on Instagram or Twitter. You share a blessing on social media. And and you have all of these things. There's this overabundance of Christian things in our world today. Those in and of themselves are not bad, but we better get our heads around what they really are. When Christian becomes an adjective to describe something that is sold in a store or online that is no different than something else sold in a store and online to another, another market, it's just an adjective. And people will not, I, don't, I just don't believe this is a reality, whether you've got all of that stuff or you've got some other thing that, that markets you as a Christian in the culture, you've got some patriotic version of it with a flag wrapped around the cross and you've got that going for you, none of that, none of that declares your Christianity. In other words, you can go straight to hell with a fish on your car. It doesn't do anything. There's another old song that says they will know we are Christians by our love, not our stuff. But all that stuff that culture identifies as Christian lacks the very thing that is unique among the crowds. And that is that agape, unconditional, selfless, redemptive love of Jesus Christ. And that is made possible for us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves only through the blood and sacrifice of Christ because we can't do that by our own will. And that is the calling of Christ today. Don't find yourself riding high on that horse going, if I'd have been back then, I never would have done that. Every generation has to own its own sins. And every generation should acknowledge the sins of the past. Otherwise, we repeat them. God's called us to a bigger story. My prayer is that when it's all said and done, Jesus doesn't say, woe to you, First Baptist Orange Park. Woe to you, David Tarkington. Or woe to you. But that he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, as we have gone through this very challenging and difficult passage this morning, we recognize that there are things that cause us to to bristle a bit. There are things that cause us to, to be frustrated a bit. And oh, Father, if this is a bitter diatribe, forgive me for that, but I pray it's a declaration of the gospel. And I pray that we will never be ashamed of it. May we learn from Jesus' model and call sin what it is, but love the people that are sinning regardless. And may we be the church that you've called us to be never so enlightened or or so smart in our own ways to think that we are better than anyone else 
but to recognize that we are just redeemed. We have been rescued for your glory and for our good. Lord, we're here just a few years to get it right. May we not waste any time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.